Everyone's still doing okay out there? It's a scorcher today. I'll try not to uh, preach my normal one-hour sermon. I'm taking uh, the room into account. Um, I am very excited to be preaching on the second part of uh, Ruth to you this morning. And full disclosure, I wasn't meant to be up here. Um, Common Ground preached through this series, um, and Steve Van Ryan uh, preached this text. And it was so good that Matt said to me, we have got to get this guy down here to preach this. And a few days later, Matt's like, he can't make it, you're up. So... There you go. Unfortunately, I'm your sloppy seconds today. Uh, have listened to Steve's sermon. It is fantastic. Uh, it has certainly helped me in my preparation, and I encourage you to go onto Common Ground's website um, and look for the Ruth series and Ruth part two. Check it out. It will bless you. And I may not be Stephen Ryan, but nonetheless, I'm pumped to be preaching this text. I was moved by Steve's sermon. I'm even more moved by this incredible section of scripture. This book of Ruth is just an incredible picture of God's redemptive hand at work through his people and everything they have to endure. It is right time, right place for us as a church. God has been speaking to us as a church through our new name process about being a redeemer. And, and last week, Matt launched this series uh, gave it a, a wonderful launching pad as he introduced the series to us. And we saw that the backdrop of Ruth was one of spiritual drought. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. It was also a time of physical drought. There was a famine in the land, and even the house of bread, Bethlehem, had no food to offer her people. So Limelech makes the very practical decision of moving his family to Moab where there was food. Logically flawless. Place A, no food. Place B, food. Relocate family to place B. But the problem is that equation only makes sense when the two places are equal entities. But when place A is the spiritual home that God has commanded you to stay in, and place B is a godless place of rebellion, suddenly you have a very real tension that you and I face of needing to be pragmatic in this world, but also having spiritual discernment. There was an opportunity here for Elimelech to seek the Lord and to discern that he should stay even though it made no sense to his eyes. But instead, he made the decision to go after what was right in his own eyes. And it was devastating for him and his family. Ten years later, his wife is widowed and childless in a godless land. And then we see God's kindness stretched towards her in the fields of Moab. And she hears word that God has visited his people again, and there is food in Bethlehem. And she makes the choice to repent, and actions follow that decision. Repentance is never just a change of mind. It has to, our footsteps have to follow. If it's genuine repentance, our footsteps have to follow what we've decided 
So if someone's having an affair and decides to repent, this is wrong, the footsteps have to follow out of that. There's always action. And for uh, Naomi, she realizes they're in the wrong place. They shouldn't be here. And it's not an easy decision. You might think it's easy to go home. We're going to see it. It's never easy to go home, especially when you have nothing. And she repents, and she takes those footsteps back towards Bethlehem. Naomi's faith has had an impact on Ruth, and she also repents and comes to faith. And we see that God providentially works, even in our disobedience, to bring about his great redemptive plan, not just for Naomi, but also for you and me. So today we find Naomi and Ruth on the long, arduous journey from Moab to Bethlehem, an uphill journey. They are going uphill. She's old. Ten days. It's fraught with danger. Women wouldn't have done this trip on their own too often. They would have had their men with them for support. There would have been bandits and all sorts of dangers along the way. Ruth and Naomi are trekking 10 days uphill towards Bethlehem. Naomi's been changed by extreme suffering, physically, emotionally, and spiritually damaged. Horned shoulders weighed down by the heavy hand of circumstance. Coming back slowly and painfully to an audience of hushed whispers and shaking heads. Coming back with nothing to nothing. Let's read this text together. It's in Ruth chapter 1, verse 19 to 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. My first point from this text this morning is that suffering changes us. Naomi left 10 years earlier, pleasant and full. She returns virtually unrecognizable. Her physical characteristics have changed. I think that's normal every 10 years, our, our physical characteristics change. But sometimes, because of what we're going through, it seems like that process is speedier. And some people seem to age physically beyond their years because of the things they have to endure and go through. This seems to have happened to Naomi. But it's more than just her appearance. It's more than just her physical characteristics. This once pleasant and influential woman has allowed bitterness to take root in her so deeply that she willingly identifies with it. 
her entire disposition has changed. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. That's what her name means. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because circumstances have not gone well for me, no. Because the Lord Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty, God who can do anything, has everything in his power, has done this to me. Wow. Bethlehem has nothing to offer in the face of this fantastic ranting. When Job um, goes through his suffering and he uh, gives his uh, rants, he's got friends around him who counter him and answer him differently. Everyone who's shocked at the appearance of Naomi and is going, is this Naomi? When she tells them that God has done this to her and they realize what has happened to her is, and if you don't know from last week, she has lost her uh, husband, untimely death. She has lost both of her adult sons, untimely death. How do you answer someone in that level of pain? Can you blame them for their silence? Can you blame her? Her pain was immense. And as I look out, I know that many of you have experienced the pain of losing someone you love. I don't think any of us are going to get through this life without facing that pain at some point. It's probably the deepest pain we can experience. It's happened to her three times in a short space of time. She is broken. She's destitute in a foreign land with no prospects on the horizon. She's so spiritually broken that she lays all of the blame at God's feet. And all she's got with her is Ruth. And we're going to see that that's actually a good thing. But right now in the story, Ruth is just an extra mouth to feed, an extra burden. What good is Ruth to her in this moment? She's trying to get rid of Ruth. Ruth, please stay with your people. You've got prospects here. You've got someone who can take care of you. Don't come with me. I've got nothing. And Ruth won't leave her. Even that is actually a burden to her at this point. And she blames God. She lays four charges down. She says, God Almighty has dealt bitterly with me, El Shaddai. She says, Yahweh, which is such a complicated name of God to explain, but the simplest way I can explain it is all sufficient. It's more complex than that, but for the purposes of the sermon, it means all sufficient. So even there, that name means something to her, and she's saying, the all-sufficient one who has everything has left me with nothing. He's all-sufficient. I have nothing. El Shaddai has brought calamity upon me. Yahweh has testified against me. Four charges where she leaves us in no doubt who she blames for what is going on. 
this is to her God's fault. God Almighty can do anything. Look what he's done to me. God, I have nothing. You have everything. She is spiritually broken. She doesn't trust God anymore. And Bethlehem is silent. I can almost imagine everyone stepping back as she rants and she raves. No one wanting to pick up a stray lightning bolt. As she lifts her fist to heaven and says, come on, God. You've come this far. Finish me off. And Daniel Block sums up his impression of Naomi after reading chapter 1 with this final outburst by Naomi. The curtain falls on act 1. The narrative leaves the reader with ambivalent feelings towards the woman. On the one hand, she had responded to the report of Yahweh's favor upon Bethlehem by setting out for home and then wishing upon her daughters-in-law the blessing of Yahweh, the God of Israel. On the other hand, she seems to have conceded to pagan worldviews by acknowledging that Orpah had returned to her gods. Naomi may have come back home in faith, but hers is a flawed faith. Unable to see human causation in Israel's famine and in her own trials, the woman the neighbors greet is a bitter old woman. She does indeed ascribe sovereignty to God, but this is sovereignty without grace, an omnipotent power without compassion, a judicial will without mercy. In a patri-centric world where a woman's security is found in her husband, and her future is determined by her sons, she stands alone, except, of course, for this Moabite who has chosen to cast her lot with her. I don't know how you're feeling about Naomi at this point. It would be easy to judge her, I suppose. After all, she chose to leave God's people. She chose to live in a land of rebellion. Maybe you feel ambivalent as Daniel Block suggests, but I wonder how you and I would respond in her situation. I lost Sebastian yesterday for five minutes. If you heard someone, a lunatic running around Vincent Park screaming Sebastian, that was me. If you saw a father taking a son by the neck, <laughs> telling him, I will deal with you ever so severely when we get home. You are about to, we are not a hitting family. You are about to receive your first hiding. I never gave it to him, but that's how I felt. Five minutes. Don't have Sebastian. I thought he was gone forever. I had a woman telling me a lady in a green dress took him past game, and I was by Megan Bean. I'm running up and down, shouting with everything I've got. Sebastian, Sebastian, Sebastian. Awful. Just five minutes, and it's not even real, and I'm still shaking. This poor woman has lost her sons permanently. And I wonder how I would respond. You know, Scripture is littered with the most faithful of God's people struggling with their faith in times of great difficulty. Full of, full of that in Scripture. We think we're going to be strong before it hits us, but when it hits us, that's when you're going to know what you're made of. And even John the Baptist, I never saw this before. I've always 
found it interesting what he says about Jesus in prison, but um, Stephen Ryan's sermon helped me see this. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, and he sees him clearly at uh, uh, the Jordan River, he says to him, I'm not even worthy to untie your, the sandals on your feet. That's how clearly he sees Jesus. You are God. I must be baptized by you. I shouldn't baptize you. And then he says to his disciples, when they say, look, everyone's going to him. Everyone's leaving you. John says, he must increase. I must decrease. That's early in the story. That's John in a younger space, seeing Jesus clearly and knowing he's God. And then we come to this very interesting text in Luke 7, verse 18. I don't have it in my notes. I'll read it on the screen. That's what he says about Jesus at the end. Are you the one we've been waiting for? Or is there another? Have you seen that before? Why is John the Baptist questioning if Jesus is the Messiah? It's because he's been captured, he's been thrown in prison, he's been living in prison for many, many months and years, and because of what's happened to him, he's not sure that Jesus is ultimately the one he thought he was. Fascinating. And Jesus will say about John, none were born of woman greater than him. Straight after Luke 7, 18. If you want to read Luke 7, you'll see Jesus saying that at the end of Luke 7. There's been none greater than John, born of woman. And the greatest of us, according to Jesus, in a hard time, questioned who Jesus was. And you might be sitting here, and I don't know what you're going through, but I want to say to you, if you find yourself lifting your fist to heaven sometimes and ranting, I think you might be in good company. I think I would have shook my fist at heaven. And I think I would say, come on, here I am. Finish me off. But the lightning bolt doesn't come. God is big enough to handle our ranting and our pain. He understands it, and what's more, he's working in it. So my second point is that suffering changes us. You're going to see I'm doing something clever here. This is going to end up being one sentence, one point but looking at it in three different ways. Suffering changes us for our good. Psalm 119, 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Psalm 119, 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your ways. Naomi herself says, prophetically, I think, with a prophetic edge, I went out, went away from God's people, full. God has brought me back empty. And we see that pattern throughout Scripture. When we're full, we're at risk. We don't need Him. We don't depend on Him. We move away from Him. When we're empty by His grace, doesn't happen to everyone, but some are able to come back to Him even though they have nothing. This is exactly what happens to Naomi. It's good for her 
that she has been afflicted because actually before she was afflicted, she left God. She walked away. Now she's coming back. God is working in that suffering to draw people closer to him again. To those in affliction this morning, and I want to acknowledge something here, you're not all in the same place. Some of you out there are in affliction, and some of you aren't. To those of you in affliction this morning, I want to encourage you, God is at work. You can be comforted by that. He's using it to bring you closer to him if you'll let him. And it's better for you to be near the Lord and for him to be working in you and draw you near as he did with Naomi than it is to be comfortable and drifting further and further away from him without even realizing it. And some of you are sitting there, you're not in affliction, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Good things can come from the Lord too, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. So if you're doing well out there, don't feel guilty. Praise God for that. Enjoy that. But be careful. Be careful if things are going well. You're at risk of wandering and losing your way. When did David stray? He didn't stray when he was in the wilderness. He strayed when he was in the palace, the fullness of that palace, and no enemies surrounding him that he needed to go out to war anymore. That's when the man after God's heart fell. He went out full. And he had a year of spiritual brokenness that we read in the Psalms where God, he couldn't hear God anymore. God wasn't speaking to him anymore before he repented. And I have a feeling one day you're going to meet David and he's going to say to you, I went through dark times. Yes, I had victories, but I had terrible, terrible times of being far away from God. It happened to him when he was full. If you are full this morning, praise God for his blessing in your life, but be careful in the season of blessing. And whatever you do, don't make the spiritually devastating error of believing the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that things must always go well for you because you follow God. Don Carson says one of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion amongst Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If by that point our beliefs, not well thought out but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with the God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and supremely in Jesus, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of our faith. That's what's happened to Naomi. Friends, you have to prepare yourself theologically for suffering. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel has lied to you. It's left you ill-prepared for the storm. Naomi believed God was going to protect her and her family, no matter what, because she followed him. And then when she loses her husband and her sons in this godless land, her whole viewpoint on God changes 
and she doesn't know the full set of scripture that we know. So I'm going to give you something so powerful here from Jesus. Jesus said, and this is pretty clear, it's one sentence, grab it. Because what you do when you're doing well is you overlook it. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. How are we getting confused? Thinking and believing the lies of preachers who make us feel like if we follow God, everything's going to go hunky-dory forever. When Jesus himself says, in this world, you will have trouble. You might not be in trouble now. There's going to be trouble at some point. And if you don't prepare yourself theologically for it, understanding that it probably will come, and then preparing yourself for how you're going to look at God in that moment. Are you going to rant and rave at God because you're so angry at Him because you couldn't believe this has happened? Or are you going to be prepared for it, knowing that God might even be at work even in this, and turn to Him and say, I trust you. Jesus helps you prepare. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. So I'm encouraging you, take heart, even though the trouble's coming, because I've overcome the world. So he's saying, when it comes, take courage in me, because I've overcome. Ultimately, it's all going to work out, so trust me. He prepares you for it. It will ultimately be okay, because I have overcome. We have to have a theology that allows for suffering and trusting God, even in our circumstances that don't change. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand before the king, and they are being put under pressure. They're being told, you have to worship and bow down before the idol, and they say, we won't do it. Then he says, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Bow down so that I don't uh, wipe you all out right now. And the furnace is there. It's visual, and it's felt. It's hot. It, the heat's coming off it. It's not an idle threat. And their response is, our God is able to save us from the fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't, so even if the circumstances we're in don't change, and this is going to be fatally the end for us, we will not bow down and worship you. Stephen is being stoned. And that will finish him off. Some of you are saying, but God saved them from the fiery furnace, and he did. Sometimes God's going to take you out of the trial for his glory, and sometimes he won't. And scripture's full of both examples, if you'll look for them. Stephen standing there, getting stoned, looking up to heaven, putting his trust in Jesus. And he doesn't get saved. William Taylor says, for if prosperity comes, it comes from God. And if adversity befalls us, it has been sent from God. And since he is love and has shown that love by the sacrifice of his son upon the cross, we may be sure that if we are his people in Christ, he cannot mean anything but love to us, whatever he may per permit to come upon us. Friends, when you know that adversity will come, 
you are theologically prepared for it, and that God intends good by it, then you can prepare your heart to be ready. You won't be surprised when the storm hits you. That's Naomi's first problem. She is surprised. And you will find it easier. It won't be easy. But you will find it easier to choose to trust him if you have prepared yourself for it. Don't go coasting through this life thinking just because it's going well right now, it's going to continue to do that. Will you trust the Lord no matter what? And my final point, and the sentence is complete now. Suffering changes us for our good and God's glory. I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to do a little thought experiment with you for a second. This will take about five minutes. So if you don't like having your eyes closed for five minutes, I apologize. I'm going to tell you a story, and it will be easier for you to imagine it with your eyes closed. I want you to imagine that Naomi is sitting here right now with us in this service. I think she might have given a few amens at my first point, that suffering changes us. Suffering changes us physically. Amen, pastor. Suffering changes us emotionally. Preach it, brother. Suffering changes us spiritually. You got it. I wonder how she might have responded at the second point. That suffering changes us for the good. And when I say imagine Naomi, I want you to imagine her right now at this point in her story. Spiritually broken. Not trusting God. And the pastor standing up on the stage saying, your suffering's for your good. I think she would have closed her Bible and thrown it at me. And maybe some of you feel that way. How can what I am going through be for my good? And notice how I said Naomi at this point. Because there's some of you who know the story well. You know what you're doing at this point in the story as the audience watching Naomi. You know what you're doing? You're saying these three words to Naomi. Hang on, Naomi. Don't judge what God is doing too quickly. Hang on, Naomi. You are almost there, because verse 22 says, they came to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. And we reach the turning point of the story. God's providence is always right time, right place. Please keep your eyes closed. It's going to make sense in a moment. God's providence is always right time, right place. The barley harvest was the first fruits of harvest season. The very first thing to be harvested was barley. It meant many more things coming are going to be harvested. It was a sign of greater things to come. God had brought Naomi to the right place on time. Naomi can't see it yet because, as the famous Puritan John Flavel writes, the providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. I'm going to read the story to you backwards with your eyes closed. We are standing. This is the end of the story for all of us. We are standing before him, seated on the throne of David. Dressed in robes of righteousness, now bowing before him, worshiping the lamb who was slain. Naomi is there, no more ranting, just worship. All because at an earlier time, we're going backwards in the story, at an earlier time, a baby was born in Naomi's hometown. 
He hung on the cross on the Friday and bore your sin and mine. He rose on the Sunday. Do you know what time of year it was when Jesus rose? It was the beginning of the barley harvest. At the festival of the first fruits, when the first sheaves of barley promised so much more to come, the second Adam is raised to life. Heaven roars as the line of Judah descended from David and Ruth is raised to life as the first fruit of many more to come, including all who trust in him today. All because at an earlier time, reading the story backwards to see God's providence, a haunched over old lady made her way home. She arrived in the city of the Savior's birth at the time of the barley harvest. Ruth, once a burden in God's providence, worth more than seven sons, it will say later in the book of Ruth, worth more than seven sons, is right by her side and has promised to stay. No matter what. A city stirred at Naomi's return, surely an embarrassment she would rather avoid. God leaving nothing to chance, stirring the city that everyone, including Boaz, would know that she and Ruth was there. And Ruth and Naomi making their way to Bethlehem as we started the sermon, slowly and painfully pressed down by the weight of suffering, now protected on their journey by the hand of God. Weighed down by suffering, pushed on by God's providential hand because his kindness found her in the fields of Moab. You can open your eyes. Can you see God's hand is all over every aspect of this painful, wonderful story. He is working on a grander scale than Naomi can ever realize. Using everything she has gone through to perform his wonderful plan and the story ends in worship around his throne. And it's the same for you in my life. I don't know where you're at in the story, but I know that um, God is bigger than you think. And he controls and uses everything for your good and for his glory. You might rant for a moment, but you will leap for joy for all eternity. Don Carson closed with this quote. We repeatedly learn from scripture that the scale of time during which God works out his purposes for us is far greater than our incessant focus on the present. Toddlers pester their parents with their urgent cries of now. From God's perspective, we adults cannot appear greatly different. Naomi never knew she would be an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. She could not possibly have enjoyed any prospect of being written up in the canon of Scripture that hundreds of millions of Jews and Christians alike would read for millennia. Her time scale was far too small for that. I'm not blaming her. I am saying that there are many instances in Scripture where the time scale on which God works out His purposes is vastly greater than what we can imagine. Perhaps the way you or I hold up under suffering may be instrumental in the conversion of someone who in turn brings up his family in the fear of the Lord so that his daughter's son might become the next Whitfield or Spurgeon or Kerry or Wilberforce. There comes a time when by rereading the scriptures, it dawns on us that God frequently utilizes and blesses small acts of faithfulness in the context of deep misery 
to bring forth blessing we could not possibly have asked for, but would have been happy to suffer for. And it's half past ten. And a beautiful way to end off this time is communion. The greatest act of God's redemptive work through suffering is Jesus Christ on the cross. God has always intended to use suffering to bring through redemption. He's done it with Jesus. He's doing it with you and me. He did it with Naomi. He is about his ultimate plan coming to pass for his glory. And he is willing to use even our suffering to go through it. When you take this bread and this communion cup, I want you to spend some time thinking about what your Savior suffered and the beautiful thing that that ended in, in your redemption. You're going to be around his throne, worshiping him forever because God gave him the grace to suffer. And we are going to suffer just like he did because we are his children. We belong to him. He disciplines his children. Don't think of it as a strange thing Peter says when trials come upon you. It's not strange. It's part of God's plan. Trust him. I'm going to ask the, uh, those that are going to serve to come up. Nateska, do you mind just playing uh, some music? There are multiple stations around the room. They are at the back, so please don't everyone come up to the front. Um, so if you're sitting nearer the back, look for the stations at the back. Can Warren, can you just indicate if they are at the back? I was told there would be. There we go. Okay, this side, where, thanks Zoe, and this side, Brendan, all right? And then we've got four stations at the front. When you are ready, you can come forward. I want you to pick up some of the bread and some of the uh, juice and hold it. And contemplatively pray about this sermon and what God is saying to you about what he's done on the cross for you. And once everyone's had a chance to get it, I will close. But this is not for all of you. This is for those who have placed their saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that yet, then you can do that if you feel that uh, you understand and you want to. You can do that. Then you're welcome to come up. This is for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. If you don't, if you're still working your way through that, then rather sit and wait for this time to be finished. But those that are ready may come up now. close our eyes. Lord, as we hold the bread and the juice and we look back, we see your wonderful hand of providence at work, even in the darkest moments, with your son hanging on the cross, where even he would cry out, why? You always using everything for the good for us in your glory, choosing to place our sin on him and him paying for that for all eternity. 
And so now, Lord, we worship and we say thank you. Thank you for dealing with our sins on this cross. Thank you for uh, the, the body broken for us. Thank you for the blood poured out for us. Thank you for the reminder that even in our own lives, you are always at work. And teach us, Lord, to trust you no matter what. Let's eat and drink together. It's the end of the service, everyone. You're welcome to um, head out into the tent for coffee and pick up your kids, hang around and have fellowship. If you want prayer, I'm at the front over here. Up here, it's also going to be at the front. You're welcome to come up and be prayed for. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next week, Sunday. Have a good one. <laughs>